1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Chris Gambino, your host for the channel. Today we'll be talking to Nicolette Hahn-Nyman about her book, Defending Beef, The Ecological and Nutritional Case for Meat, Revised and Expanded Edition. Nicolette, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Sure. Um, right now, I live on a ranch in Northern California, a little bit north of San Francisco. Uh, I I was originally from the Midwest, from Michigan, and I studied biology undergrad and um, got a law degree from University of Michigan. And then I became um, a practicing attorney for a number of years. And the I was a practicing attorney for 10 years. And the last several years, I was working for environmental groups and mostly focused on water pollution. <clears throat> but the, the, um, the second organization I worked for was called Waterkeeper Alliance, and I worked for Bobby Kennedy Jr. And he asked me to focus specifically on pollution from livestock production. So that sort of became my area of expertise. But as I headed up the project that he wanted me to work on, I um, sort of quickly decided that we needed to um, not just sort of, you know, focus on the problems of, you know, problematic systems, but also sort of um, highlight a good examples of <clears throat> uh, animal husbandry that was environmentally, <clears throat> excuse me, sound and, um, you know, uh, producing good food and providing good lives for humans and animals. So we began working with a network of farmers called the Nyman Ranch Group, Nyman Ranch um, Company, which had a couple, several hundred farmers in it at that time. And um, through that, I was living in New York City, working as an environmental lawyer. And I met uh, Bill Nyman, the founder of Nyman Ranch, through, through the work. And I ended up marrying him and moving to California and, um, to the ranch that he lived on. He's the founder of <clears throat> the Nyman Ranch Company and also a, um, a rancher himself. And when I first moved to the ranch, um, you know, I was a vegetarian and an environmental lawyer and didn't have any intention of becoming a rancher myself <laughs> kind of, you know, an unusual background for a ranching person. And, um, I ended up, uh, kind of falling in love with the ranch. And so for seven years, I worked full time on our ranch. And then, um, we've had, we have two young boys and once they were born, um, I moved more to a part-time helper on the ranch, but I've been living on a ranch uh, for the past 18 years and have spent a lot of time learning about, you know, sort of firsthand about how to do a good job of uh, land stewardship and animal husbandry and and have written two books and a lot of articles and essays about the topic of meat and how animals are raised for food. Because my whole focus has become uh, sort of advocating for, you know, improvements in how we're doing things, but at the same time, arguing that animals are valuable to ecosystems and to food systems, and that especially the food from those animals is extremely useful to human health. Important, essential, actually, I would even say. So, so that's kind of become, you know, my focus over these last several years.
1: So you mentioned kind of how you got into the area, uh, what brought you to the, to kind of working on the topic, but this is the revised and expanded edition. So what, what prompted the update?
0: Yeah, I originally wrote the Defending Beef book about six years ago and I had written it because my first book, Righteous Pork Chop, was really an argument Against the kind of large scale concentration of animal, uh, of animal agriculture, and just arguing that, you know, that that had a lot of problems for um, human and animal health, and for uh, you know for the environment, especially for water quality, but air quality as well. And after I wrote that book, I kept um, encountering people who said things like well, I read your book, and I became a vegetarian, (laughs) or things like that. And I kept thinking, well, that wasn't really the point of it. (laughs) You know, it was really trying to argue for better systems, you know, not eliminating animals from the food system or from our diets, but rather that we need to do things in a better way. And I particularly was frustrated by, you know, having not just spent a lot of time on our ranch here, but also having visited I've probably visited well over 100 farms and ranches over the last 20 years, both in the U.S. and abroad. And um, I've seen a lot and I've learned a lot. And I really believe that the grazing animals in particular are incredibly important because of the way that they can um, tremendously benefit soil biology and use marginal lands. You know, lands that really can't be farmed or couldn't be um. You know the sources of food for humans, otherwise, and so I just started thinking. You know the grazing animals and especially beef. They they're an incredibly important part of the food system, but there's just so much criticism of beef. You know both both um, you know on a health side and on an ecological side. And as someone who came you know has a very strong environmental background as an environmental lawyer and you know I was even you know, I would have called myself an environmentalist, even as a child, I was, you know, I had the Ranger Rick, you know, magazine, and I spent a lot of time outdoors with my family. And I was always interested in the natural world. And um, I was, uh, I am persuaded, and I was increasingly persuaded that, that, that the grazing animal plays a really important role in in ecology and and in the way that our, you know, our food systems, if we try to make them ecologically sound, we really need these animals. And so I felt a defense needed to be written uh, by someone who uh, both believed in beef and believed in the importance of, you know, really um, high standards from an ecological perspective. And so I wrote the the original book and um, I did, I've done a lot of speaking and, you know, follow up interviews and so forth from that book. But um, the publisher actually approached me and said, "You know, we feel this topic is more, you know, more topical than ever. Would you be willing to update the book?" And I jumped at the chance, and I thought I could do it in just a few months by adding some new research because there's been a lot of research about the climate change issues and about soil biology and about on the human health side. So I thought I could probably just take a few months and you know add new research. But what ended up happening was. I went through the book, you know, line by line, over and over, and realized there was a lot that I wanted to change because I, you know, my thinking has evolved a lot, and and the situation has evolved a lot. So, um, it's really a whole new book, and it's um, I'm I'm thrilled to have it coming out right now because there's so much anti-meat conversation out there, and I think most, you know, about ninety five percent of it. Is completely wrong-headed. So, I want to, you know, insert these ideas into the the public dialogue that's taking place right now. That's very, you know, very um, suggestive that we should just stop eating meat altogether as humans, and that you know the food system really shouldn't have animals in it. So, so I I, um, I was kind of excited to get the opportunity to re- to redo the book, and this is really a whole new book, um, making the case both ecologically and nutritionally for the importance of uh, cattle, especially, but really all animals in the food system.
1: So let's jump in. Then you've got this environment and culture section, and you talk a lot about kind of climate change, water, biodiversity, all these concepts that you just brought up that that typically uh, get wrestled with around the impacts of livestock uh, production systems. And so let's go. Let's go to a specific. Let's go to climate change. Right, that's one of the big ones that folks are talking about. That's probably why it's become a more salient conversation of late. Um, you say that the the charges of the climate change charges against cattle are like a red herring. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah. Well, I think for me, um, you know, as as someone who grew up spending a lot of time outdoors and was always interested in nature and how it functions, increasingly i've become persuaded you know we just just heard the results of the newest census saying that there are more you know we're a more urbanized population than ever in the united states and that's true in most of the western world as well the industrialized world and so you know i think part of what's happening is there's just more conversation being driven by people who don't spend much time out in nature and maybe aren't even interested in in it, you know. It's and so um, I think it's a result of the sort of disconnectedness that people have from sort of you know living in the elements and in the seasons and really understanding on a on a very visceral level um, how nature works. Because for me, it, you know, with a biological background and an environmental background, um, I've become sort of more and more persuaded that. Um, You know, the earth, how it evolved and how we as humans, how our bodies evolved is kind of the fundamental starting point we should be talking about when we're trying to figure out, you know, how to do things in an ecologically sound way and what we should be eating to have, you know, healthy bodies. And when you think about it from that perspective, you know, the earth has had grazing animals, a lot of them, you know, for millions of years, for tens of millions of years. And the ruminant animal in particular had this Incredibly important role in how the earth evolved in terms of sort of the creating and the maintenance of open grassy areas. So, you know, grasses evolved, you know, somewhere around 60, 000, 60 million years ago, rather. And um, in the years following, there were more and more grazing animals evolving all over the world that were sort of creating large open grassy areas. And in fact, people often think. That the Earth was sort of covered in trees, you know, and until humans came and cut down the trees, (laughs) especially um, like in Europe, a lot of people think that was the case. Well, in the U.S. too, I I hear that periodically when people are talking about you know environmental issues, and it's really a false perception because um, there was a a long, you know, tens of millions of year history of the ruminant animal um, beginning to um, sort of exist in these open areas and their presence and the, pr- the presence of um, large populations of predators that were sort of keeping them, you know, keep, keeping their populations in check, keeping them moving, etc. This was a, 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 you know, a huge part of how the Earth evolved. So when we think about, um, you know, modern-day food systems, um, there's a perception that underlies a lot of the conversation that animals are inherently problematic, and that, you know, I, I just saw. I was just looking at an article just yesterday that was suggesting that, you know, um, the grazing animal is very "quote unquote" inefficient, (laughs) you know, because it um, eats this, you know, very low quality of, um, you know, has a very low quality diet in terms of what it's consuming when it's eating grass, and so therefore it takes up a lot of space, and this is, you know, translated. And this article was suggesting that. Um, because it takes up so much of the land mass of the earth and it produces, you know, a comparatively smaller percentage of the, you know, the nutrition for the earth, therefore they're inefficient. Well, that's just, to me, that's just a fundamental misunderstanding about, you know, the role of the grazing animals. Because if you look at the earth, um, the long history of the earth, um, there were, there were huge populations of grazing animals that declined, you know, quite a bit in recent you know, millennia because of both the changes to the climate, but also human hunting reduced the population of wild grazing animals. But they've been here for a very, very long time. And the way I see the cattle in particular is kind of replacing those disappeared wild grazing animals that used to cover so much of the earth. And they can and should kind of play the same role from an ecological standpoint in terms of, you know, how they affect soil and vegetation and just the kind of, you know, upstream, you know, cascade that they have on an ecosystem. And when they're well managed, they do a very good job of replacing the disappeared wild grazing animal. So, it, I, you know, I, for me, just the fundamental starting point um, in, the, in the discussion about um, grazing animals is, is quite off base. Um, and then from a dietary standpoint, you know, we've been as humans, we've been eating you know, meat for probably around three million years. And all of our physiology is designed to um, to have meat and other foods from animals as part of what we consume. And so when we talk about reducing animal based foods or get, getting rid of them, we're basically making the argument that we can ignore our physiology and our, you know, our evolution, which I think is, is really a foolish approach.
1: So you keep bringing up the grazing animal. We'll we'll come back to the the grazing animal, but I think it's relevant because the books defending beef is, is the title. uh, And you just discussed kind of this, the addressing the charges against cattle, but at the same time you say that there is a problem with methods of, of raising, of raising cattle. So maybe I'm jumping the gun. And once you answer this question, I won't have anything else to ask, but how do you distinguish, how do you distinguish the two? Uh, essentially you've got, you've got systems here that you're discussing. Uh, and one of them sounds, sounds like it's the grazing animal, um, but it's not just beef in general, right? You're not defending all beef in the book.
0: Yeah, Well, to, to a degree, I am because, um, you know, as I point out in the book, um, Wes Jackson, you know, is a great sort of agricultural thinker has argued that, you know, sort of the worst managed cattle ranch is probably ecologically more benign than a lot of crop production, you know. So I do like to make um, make those kind of points. And, and also even people, you know, most people who don't understand, um, you know, animal-based food systems very well, think of cattle as growing up and spending their whole lives in large feedlots and, you know, sort of never, never being on grass and never sort of providing the, you know, the kind of ecosystem services that, that they provide, um, when they're on grass and they're well-managed. But the reality is, of course, that, um, cattle spend, you know, pretty much all cattle in the industrialized world will spend a good portion of their lives grazing. And, you know, the mother cows in a typical situation in the United States will spend pretty much their entire lives grazing. The calves will be with their mothers and usually they'll continue to be on grass for a period of time after they're weaned, you know, until around, you know, typically until they're about a year old or so. And then they'll go to a feedlot. So and then obviously the bulls also tend to be on grass for pretty much their entire lives. So when grazing is understood to be environmentally beneficial and you understand that about cattle, it's a whole different conversation. You know, and then we can have debates about feedlots and whether they should exist at all or how they should be handled. Um you know, and I'm, you know, I, I think I make it pretty clear in the book that I don't uh, think that especially large feedlots are the best choice. I think that um, really all systems with grazing animals should, opt, you know, should maximize, including dairy systems, you know, should maximize how much time the animals are on grass. And I have to say that between the two books, you know, the first version of Defending Beef and the second version um, I, I read a lot and learned a lot that convinced me more that it's more important than ever to have animals on grass because um, the, there there is actually a pretty convincing body of evidence that, from a health perspective, you know the food that you're producing the meat or the milk is benefited pretty significantly by having the animals. On some sort of rangeland or pasture, uh, as as much as possible. So I've um, you know I've shifted more towards the argument that we really should have them on grass as much as possible. That said, I understand the importance of the feedlot to the modern food system, and I don't you know totally condemn it and or people who use them. But I think that we should be moving you know collectively as you know as a society we should be moving towards grass and away from feedlots. Um, so I think, you know, to me, to go back to the climate change issue for a moment that you asked me about, I make the, the, the there's a lot of discussion of the science and the details um, in the book. But the sort of big picture argument is that, you know, the earth had these grazing animals for millions of years. It's part of how the earth is, it has evolved and, is, and functions. And what we really need to be doing is thinking about um, how do we use these animals in a way, how do we manage them and keep them in such a way that they're providing the ecological um, effects that they evolved with the earth to do? And um, you know, one of the most important things that they do, wherever you have well managed grazing animals, uh, their impacts—you know, their hooves press the vegetation and the seed into the soil, which feeds the soil and helps seeds to germinate. Their grazing eliminates. You know, when you have um, any any um, area of grassland and you have grazing, you have more diversity of the plants because um, later sprouting uh, plant varieties are and and species are able to come up that would otherwise be crowded out by shade. And so there's more sunlight that hits all different types of, um, you know, uh, seeds and seedlings. And, um, of course their manure and their urine provides not just, we talk a lot about, you know, the, the sort of, um, you know, the, the, chemical components, you know, the nitrogen and other, um, you know, potassium, um, in the, um, and phosphorus in, in manure and urine, but we don't, uh, we don't always focus on the, the, um, the sort of the biological benefits that having the, um, the microorganisms that are in manure uh, going back into the soil and how that can jumpstart the whole subterranean, um, microorganism, um, you know, system that's below ground. So there are lots of, um, reasons why having cattle or any grazing animals on a and grassland, will tend to not just sequester carbon, but will make the whole ecosystem more full of life and full of water. And there's a lot of evidence that water is, there's more water kept in the soil, and, and th- therefore the whole ecosystem gets more water um, when you have grazing animals. And so all of that has benefits for climate change, because we know that More um, carbon is released to the air where you have desertified areas or dry areas and wherever you have a vegetative cover that is, um, you know, healthy and intact, but especially if it's diverse, um, you have more protection of the water that's in the soil, all of which keeps everything cooler And there's more carbon going into the soil and more carbon staying in the soil coming from the atmosphere. So there are a lot of different um, ways in which grazing animals have a, a positive effect on an ecosystem from a climate change perspective. And there have been good studies in recent years, some smaller scale and some larger scale, showing that where you have good grazing that's well managed, you can actually have a net uh, beneficial effect on climate because you'll have more carbon being sequestered in the soil than you will have that's being released by the whole production system. And so and that includes the methane, by the way. So that's um, that's a really important thing for people to understand as a starting point when we have that conversation about uh, beef and climate change. And uh, people will often come back and say, well, those are well-managed systems and most systems are well, aren't well-managed. And I would give some credence to that point. But the point then is, okay, so then we need to focus on how we're raising the animals, right? It isn't the cow, it's the how. And that's definitely true for climate change, but it's also true for all of the other ecological issues that people bring up.
1: So I appreciate you kind of defending a little bit more about where your stance is. Uh, recently, and and in the past, a lot of the models suggest kind of the, that, the cow-calf aspect of the industry is where the majority of emissions reside, uh, mainly because uh, that's where the majority of the lifespan occurs. So where, where do we stand with kind of wrestling with kind of the whole system, right? If we're putting all the pieces together and you haven't yet uh, said that you're out outwardly against the, the feed yard or the feed lot. Um, You do mention some problems that we'll get to at the end with, with regard to those that you want to transition the industry. But if we've got cow, calf, right, there's, there's a lot going on. It's not just climate oriented, right? You're looking at biodiversity, you're talking about soil, talking about water, all these things you mentioned, but from kind of the, the one metric that uh, a lot of people use when they're having the conversation about whether or not uh, to keep beef around is, is climate change, is greenhouse gas emissions. And yet a lot of the models say that the cow-calf sector, uh, part of that supply chain, is the the biggest emitter. How do we kind of combat that? Or how do we have a discussion around that?
0: Well, it's all about the how. I mean, this is, <clears throat> this is the whole thing, especially when you're... This is why I think there's a pretty important distinction between when cattle are on grass versus when they're in feedlots. Because... Um, feedlots, you know, you will be bringing in feed, you know, you do have the animals, you know, essentially on dirt and you bring the feed from some other location and that feed has been harvested, you know, mechanically planted, harvested, transported, you know, so there is definitely going to be, you know, there are a number of different ways that you're going to have various ecological, uh, you know, resource uses and effects from that With grazing animals, when they're on grass, it's a totally different situation because if they're, you know, there are tons of examples from around the world showing that where you have well-managed grazing, I mean, they're harvesting, you know, there isn't typically planting or, I mean, I'm pretty familiar with systems from around the world. And I know that there are places where there's a lot of, um, you know, usage of, uh, you know, forage, um, seeds and where things are plowed and planted and where things are irrigated and where things are fertilized. And, you know, I know in New Zealand, they use a lot of fertilizer on um, grazing areas and so forth. And I've been to New Zealand and seen some of it for myself. But bottom line, if you're, um, you can create grazing systems where, so, you know, talking about the cow-calf portion, where you're not doing any of that, you know, where you're not, uh having the environmental expenditure of using large scale machinery or using agricultural chemicals and you're really using the power of the grazing animal to create a healthy ecosystem and to do the foraging to do the you know the harvesting of the plant themselves and so it prevent, presents a, a pretty amazing opportunity i mean there really isn't any other type of food where we you know where that can Uh, where it works like that. (laughs) There's, there's pretty much going to be planting and harvesting and transporting with pretty much any other kind of food. So I I think when you talk about the cow-calf section, and when you talk about that as being kind of the most problematic from a climate change perspective, there's, it's all about the opportunity. You know, there's a tremendous opportunity to make that actually, because, you know, examples have shown this this has been and can be done, um, that can be not just the most, you know, carbon neutral segment of the, the industry, but it can really be the part that provides all the ecosystem services that grazing animals can provide in terms of making more biodiverse environments. You know, there's there's a um, um, some really good research that's been done, and I talk about it specifically in the book, um, showing that where you have Um, more biodiversity in the soils, that you will have more biodiversity in the entire ecosystem. So everything becomes more biodiverse, you have more biodiversity of the plants, you have more biodiversity of the insect life, you have more biodiversity of the larger animals, you know, so it kind of goes from microorganisms all the way up to, you know, megafauna. And that kind of mind frame, you know, when you're thinking about that as being an important um, part of the way we approach food production, you can see how important the grazing animal is because the grazing animal, when well-managed, has tremendous beneficial effects in terms of the biodiversity of the life of the soil. And this is a little bit off the topic of your question, but Um, I have been really intrigued by the work of Dr. Fred Provenza in showing that the biodiversity of the plants, you know, that the plant life that the animals are grazing on has a tremendous effect on the health of the animal and of the food that they produce. So there are lots of things to consider about how we're raising grazing animals, and both from an ecological standpoint and from a health of the animal and health of the food standpoint. Um, But I think I'm I'm glad these conversations are starting to happen now, because I don't think anyone was really focusing on this 20 years ago, or, you know, let's put it this way, very few people were talking about the importance of, you know, the soil biology and the biodiversity of the pasture or rangeland. But now we're realizing this isn't, you know, just a few hippies (laughs) who want to live in the trees that are talking about this. I mean, this is really important stuff for having a truly ecologically sustainable food system.
1: having complete cover is the sure fast way to reduce soil erosion. And that's been discussed plenty of times by plenty of people thinking about this over time. Uh, how do we, and one of the things, this is, this is what I found really difficult in the literature. Uh, you talk about Alan Savory a, a little bit and, and right, there's, that becomes a, a, almost a dividing point for a lot of people that are kind of, we want to see the promise of regenerative agriculture and its principles, uh, but are missing kind of the, the, the better sort of scientifically, um, uh, gathered evidence. And so one of the things that's really tough in the literature is kind of how people go about defining pasture versus rangeland and and what are these nuanced differences, how USDA defines them, how USGS defines them. Um, Talk more, you brought up marginal lands. Talk to us about this concept, this important concept of marginal lands and why they're so critical to the place or the role of the grazing animal.
0: Well, um, Dr. Lynn Hunsinger, who's retired now, but she was a great uh, scientist at UC Berkeley in the biology department and a rangeland scientist for decades. She always says, you know, about half, almost half of the Earth's surface is not a place where you can raise um, crops. And, you know, it's either too hilly, it's too rocky, it's too windy, it's not warm enough. You know, there are lots of reasons why you can't raise crops in a lot of areas. And this is the place where the vast majority of the grazing of the world takes place. So this is a fundamental point that a lot of people don't understand. And, you know, they talk about, you know, again, going back to this idea of efficiencies and, you know, we have, um, you know, we could raise soy on this amount of land and produce this many calories and this much protein. And there's a lot to be said about, you know, whether or not that's comparable to meat from the nutritional standpoint, but um, because it's not. But (laughs) shorthand, it's not. Um, But even just looking at it from an environmental efficiency argument, it doesn't make a lot of sense because because the vast majority of the grazing of the world's, um, you know, grazing animals is taking place on lands where you actually can't raise soy or any other crop like that. So the marginal lands, and, you know, this is especially true in the developing world where, um, You know, I actually attended a conference several years ago in Germany. Um, I was a speaker at a conference um, that was a gathering of the world's, um, some of the world's smaller scale grazing peoples from around the world. And there were people from Argentina and Pakistan and Africa and um, lots of different parts of Africa, actually, at this event. And listening to them um, talk about the way um, grazing is practiced in their countries was so fascinating because so many of these people are, um, they were kind of representing huge numbers of people who don't even own the land that they're grazing on. Right. So they have herds of sheep, goats, cattle, um, whatever, um, camels even. And they're, they're nomadic peoples or they're people who have a small, you know, place where they live, but their um, animals are, they take them out every day to graze them on some land and then bring them back into some kind of enclosure in their small homestead, but they don't actually control very much land. But grazing allows that, that marginal land that can't be used for for um, crop growth and in many cases isn't even, isn't even owned, you know, um, by someone who's doing agriculture with it. Um, but it can be used for grazing. And, in, of course, in the Western um, United States, we have a huge portion of the land here that is not suitable for crops. And, you know, I'm based in California and I've traveled all over Oregon and um um, much of California and Colorado and Utah and seen a lot of this land for myself. And, uh, you know, being originally from Michigan, it, it, w- it was not something I really understood until I moved to California. And you see the areas where the cattle are grazing and you understand better for the first time that, you know, this is not a place where you could do, or maybe you, or you really shouldn't be doing um, crop production. And so what this is doing is it's allowing um, that land that doesn't have the qualities that are required to be um, useful for for crop production, to be part of the food system. And because of what I was talking about earlier, the disappeared grazing animals that were once there, you know, whether they were elk or caribou or antelope or whatever, um, you know, and, and like I was amazed to learn in my research, you know, that on, on the land that we are on here in California, there were once 18 different types of megafauna in this very location, that were grazing and were predators of these large grazing animals. So people think about the elk in California, but there were far more than elk. You know, there were different types of uh, elephants, there were different types of lions. You know, there were bears, wolves. There were there was just a, an enormous kind of menagerie of large animals that once covered these landscapes. And when you're grazing cattle, on these areas that are not suitable for farming, but they're sort of meant to be grasslands, you are um, providing some of the same kinds of impacts that those disappeared prehistoric animals would have been providing. And um, that allows those ecosystems to continue to exist. So all of the, you know, uh, the, the raptors and, um, you know, and the snakes and the many, many other animals that live on these areas can continue to be here because you have um, the domesticated grazing animals now.
1: And as I hear you talk, I think more and more about this this notion that the the metric that we use really matters. Um, you, can, you can frame your like or dislike around a certain production system based on a single metric but what you argue uh, and and have several chapters on these different topics is that you have to think more holistically about the the entire system it's not just climate it's not just greenhouse gases it's not just water it's not just land it's not just biodiversity factoring in all of these points you to a particular system that that is important and i think you're you're driving home this notion of the importance of the grazing part of the system, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah. And just thinking in terms of the animal that you're raising, you know, and this would ap- a- a- apply to other parts of um, the agricultural system as well, but when you're um, raising, grazing animals for food, you're actually, um, you, you know, you're interacting con- In sort of countless ways with nature, you know. And so the idea that you just sort of um, measure the inputs and the outputs, you know, and the production, and that that's all you do, that to me is the whole problem with modern agriculture. And that's what's gotten us where we are today, where there are so many negative environmental impacts from the modern systems. What, you know, so I'm sort of saying we need to have a reset in the way that we just. Think about what we're doing and think about our starting points about how we want to do this. And so the the um, the issue doesn't become mitigation. You know, you're not trying to mitigate the negative effects of your system. You're trying to start from the beginning and say, what is the appropriate use of this land wherever you are? And how is this landscape meant to function and what is best suited to be cultivated here or raised here? And then how do we raise it in such a way that it works with the natural resources that are present on this land? And that's what, you know, indigenous people have done all over the world for, you know, forever. Um, But in modern agriculture, we've tended to kind of abandon that. We've, we've basically felt we didn't need to, you know, pay attention to, sort of the parameters, the natural parameters that existed there. And um, and with respect to climate change, you know, I just think um, I gave a talk at um, a fifth grade class a few weeks ago and and I started out with this little draw, drawing where I had um, a cow and uh, I had like a whiteboard and I had a cow that I drew and then a, a car that I drew and I said, What's the similarity between these two things? And I and I and I thought it you know it'd be interesting to see what the kids said because a, a, a group of adults would probably say well they're both emitters you know of, of global warming gases right but a kid raised his hand and said they both start with the letter C <laughs> and, I, and I said exactly that's exactly the right answer because the truth of the matter is that a car is a human built machine that you can in fact very scientifically document every single sort of input and output and the way, you know, that affecting not just the climate, but, you know, all of the environmental, you know, effects that you have from, you know, mining the ore for the steel. And, you know, you could, you could go back and trace all of that. The cow is a totally different entity because it is a living, breathing organism that is going to be in a natural environment. And it's going to have countless, I mean, literally countless kind of infinite interactions with its natural environment every day that it's alive. And so if you're just looking at inputs and outputs, it's kind of absurd. So what I'm arguing is we need to think about cattle as part of these, you know, these natural environments that have countless effects. And if we just focus on mitigating what we quote unquote mitigating negative impacts, um, it's kind of missing the whole point. Instead, we need to think of them as entities that belong on this earth, right? But they need to be managed in such a way that their impacts are beneficial. And when they are managed in a way that's comparable to the wild grazing animals, it will benefit the earth. It will benefit the water. It will benefit the vegetation, the biodiversity, the soils, and uh, and it will have few, if any, uh, effects in terms of climate change.
1: So the mitigation conversation you just brought up is from kind of an external audience, but also in towards the latter part of the book, you start to note that there's some internal resistance to change that you that you call tone deafness. Uh, and that drives to some of these points that you say kind of you do see that there are issues, right? There's still some problems that you think need to be worked on uh, and would like to see them more openly discussed rather than resisted. And I'm going to list seven of them and then you can talk about, you can pick and choose a couple to, to give us some more information about. But you list seven such problems that you'd love to see uh, be a more open conversation in the industry and kind of make progress on. Uh, one being the way cattle are managed on the land, two, the substances they are fed, three, uh, hormones and drugs that are used to stimulate growth, four, polluting practices, five, wasted resources, six, long distance transport of live animals, and then lastly, animal handling at slaughter. So let's talk about a couple of these issues that uh, you say you'd like to see the industry uh, make forward progress on.
0: Yeah, well, a couple of those relate to animal welfare. So I, the first point I want to make is I think the welfare situation of animals in the beef sector is probably by far the best, you know, as a general rule. Obviously, you can always find bad examples. Uh, but, I, you know, if you look at a life cycle and the life, that a typical beef animal has, Um, it's, it's a pretty nice life, you know? And, um, and I think that's a very important starting um, point to make, but that being said, I think there are some significant, um, animal welfare concerns that remain, um, especially with respect to like, for example, transport of live animals, as you mentioned, um, you know, you, you, uh, you can transport cattle quite far in a, in a, in a relatively, Um, you know, in a safe and high welfare situation, and it's fine. I don't suggest that, you know, there shouldn't be any transport of animals. But there are many examples where cattle are being transported. You know, those of us that are in the industry know that basically cattle cannot lie down when they're being transported so because they risk being trampled to death. So they're basically standing that entire time. And groups like Animal Welfare um, Institute have come up with standards for the maximum length of transport I'm not sure what it is off the top of my head. I think it's maybe six hours. I'm not sure. But essentially, we need to look at things like that and understand that those things are important, not just because the animals and their welfare is important, but because that's the kind of stuff that is um, giving you know the cattle industry a bad name. So we really need to understand that people care about that. And I think there's a dramatic difference now. Um, when I started working on this 20 years ago, there was... Um, you know, concern about the welfare of animals in the food system, but it was mostly coming from, you know, what I would call kind of anti meat activists. But now the mainstream consumer, I mean, this conversation has dramatically shifted over the last 20 years, and the mainstream consumer is talking about this. And so we, as, you know, a meat industry, need to be talking about this and understanding that. Um, It's important that the, you know, what the subjective experience of the animal is from birth all the way to slaughter is really important. We need to take it seriously. And I, and there've been tremendous improvements made to, you know, the welfare of slaughter um, houses over the last, you know, obviously Temple Grandin has played a huge role in that, but there have been many other people as well. And so I think the, the industry has made dramatic improvements. And, you know, my husband, who's a, you know, really a meat industry guy always says the welfare of the animal is incredibly important, not just for the sake of the animal, but because the meat quality suffers when you have, you know, poor animal handling at the slaughterhouse, especially, for example. So this is something we, you know, the the meat industry has made improvements on, but needs to continue to work on a lot. Um, I would say, similarly, um, with respect to the the use of growth hormones, you know they were um, basically they haven't been allowed for a long time in much of the world, um, the European Union and other countries around the world that have said you can't use these substances. And you know I think you know I encounter people all the time who who talk about this, um, whether it's in milk or meat, and um, and this is a concern for them. And I think. You know, if you do what they've done in Europe where they basically say, well, nobody can use this, it levels the playing field. So then you don't just have some people using it and some people not using it. And then, uh, you know, there's an advantage. I mean, you can get, of course, you can get meat cheaper to market if you're in in milk as well. Um, But what are the downstream effects? And I think one of the most important things is loss of consumer confidence. So if we together as an industry say we need to get rid of these things I think that benefits everyone. And there are, you know, I think there's a lot of good evidence. I talk about some of it in the book about the reasons why we should be doing it just from the welfare of the animal standpoint, the health and welfare of the animal standpoint. But there's also some evidence suggesting that, it, you know, there's a problem for human health for some of these substances. So I think um, we need to take that seriously and we should be doing everything possible to make consumers trust our food products that we're creating and want to consume them. (laughs) So, um, that's part of the reason I mentioned those issues.
1: Well, Nicolette, I appreciate it. We touched on only a small amount of the big items that you, you tackle in the book. And so there's plenty more to dive into that you discuss in the book, along with those kind of seven problems and, and how you see, uh, moving away from them as problems and kind of addressing them and, and moving, uh, the needle to a more kind of regenerative aspect uh, all show up in the text. And so uh, we're going to close with one last question before we leave. And it's kind of what, what is piquing your interest now?
0: Well, I'm very, I'm heartened. I mean, you know, I I always feel kind of um, troubled whenever I see more and more talk about things like fake meat and, you know, replacing meat with these kinds of foods Um, Because I actually think that uh, a cornerstone of a healthy diet is real food. And it's a lot of the reason that I'm such a big defender of beef is because it's really nutrient rich food and provides so many valuable nutrients to humans. And I think humans, modern humans are really nutrient deficient. So it's really important food. Um, So I get troubled by the, uh, you know, the kind of the idea that you can replace meat with fake food, but I'm also heartened, you know, and sort of what's, what's um, given me optimism about this is there's more and more um, research, actual, you know, sort of scientific research showing the value of the foods from animals. And I'm excited to see this kind of emerging body of science showing that this is food that is unique and really valuable to human health. And um, Dr. Stephen um, Von Vliet at Duke University, for example, is one of the people that is looking at a kind of microscopic level about the different types of things that are offered in these different foods and um, showing that there's no real equivalence between meat and fake meat. And um, I think this is going to strengthen the argument that we should be focusing on You know, again, it's not the cow, it's the how, because when we raise animals well, they are environmentally beneficial and they provide extremely valuable food for humans. And so to me, that's the question. That is the crux of the matter. How are we raising the animals? Not should we or should we not? To me, that's very clear but how? And if we can all kind of agree, you know, people that are raising animals and people that are just consuming them or not consuming them, you know, if we can all kind of agree that that, there's an urgent question there and focus our resources and attention there, then I think we can make a lot of progress.
1: Well, Nicolette, thank you for joining us and leaving us with kind of wrestling with thinking about and trying to answer the how question.
0: Yes. Well, thank you for inviting me.